Heroes get remembered. Here's the windup. Legends never die. Fastball hits deep to right. This could be it. Way back there. Oh, Welcome to Hardball. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Major League Baseball's history in first person. Conversations that span almost 20 years. It is 9.46 p.m. With the men who saw and made that history. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Many of whom are no longer with us. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Stories from the 1930s. To the 21st century. This is Hardball. Dad, you want to have a catch? Welcome into Hardball. My name is Chris Domino, and this is our continued trek through baseball's history, one conversation at a time. It has been a while since we gathered here for a new episode, so thanks to any and all who are back today. For those of you who are new to Hardball, I hope what you hear today might lead you to look back at some of the first 35 or so episodes that we've put out, and maybe you find a few that you might have an interest in listening to. If you are new, I would also like to tell you that while many of these people are associated with one team, most of them before free agency, most of these conversations include talking about both men they played with and against, as well as what was going on in the world at the time they played. I'm always hopeful that there is some social or historical aspect that comes through beyond just batting averages, home runs, or World Series wins and losses. So if you're not a Yankee fan or an Oriole fan or Met or Tiger fan, the thing I have heard quite often, and thankfully so from folks who have downloaded Hardball or stumbled upon it, is this. Some of their favorite episodes have been with players whose careers or teams they were not overly aware of in any detail and came away feeling that the time spent listening was what drove them to listening to other episodes. I started recording many of these a little over 20 years ago, and some were played once or twice over the years until airing clips on a baseball show I host in Atlanta. I've been doing radio for a little over 28 years, and catching up with these men has easily been the most enjoyable, and hopefully in its own very small way, important thing that I've done in that time. Documenting stories, audio history that has found a place to live for now, right here where you found this. My guest today is a man I not only enjoyed speaking with, but became one of the a couple of handfuls who I would call randomly over the years to just say hello, and he was gracious in taking that call. By the way, his grace, the way he lived his life post-baseball, a 61-year marriage, and a businessman who shared, gave back as a philanthropist for the entirety of his days. There have been over 350 brother combinations in the history of MLB baseball, and only one family can claim three brothers, all named to an all-star team in their careers. Vince, Joe, Dominic. The DiMaggio's, with their varying degrees of fame, baseball legacy, and post-career successes and disappointments, are those brothers. I caught up with Dominic, the little professor, the glasses-wearing seven-time All-Star, and the man who writer David Halberstam and many of his peers claim to be one of the most underrated players of his generation. It's hard to be underrated when you're a seven-time All-Star. When you go a decade, ten seasons, you total 1,679 base hits, more than any other player in that span of time. You want the names of those who followed right behind him? How about Enos Slaughter, Stan Musial, Ted Williams, and 
Pee Wee Reese. All, by the way, of course, Hall of Famers. Oh, and in that same 10-year span, how about second and run scored to Williams? Third and doubles behind Williams and Musial. And according to all who really watched the game, as good in center field as anyone in the game at his time. Dominic was also loved by his teammates and respected both on and off the field. And while the World Series ring proved elusive and the headlines in Living in the Shadow of Joe might have seemed something that could have turned him bitter, the exact opposite was true. He never begrudged his brother's successes. The man had too many other things in his life, and the admiration bestowed upon him, quite honestly, something that many have said outshone Joe in some ways. Ted Williams told the world that Dominic DiMaggio deserved to be in the Hall of Fame, and that should have been enough to really have his candidacy more closely looked at over the years. He served three years in the Navy, like many, time lost with no regrets, but a factor of perhaps that Hall of Fame resume that came up short for the keepers of the gate. We will talk of some of those things. And full disclosure, I had the chance to speak to Mr. DiMaggio one other time with the recorder rolling, but that and a few other conversations were lost forever and it's still very painful to think about Mother Nature-driven computer mishap. I hope you enjoy this, and if you do, I ask that if you have a minute, please hit subscribe to Hardball. You will get notifications of new episodes dropping, and if you have another minute on top of that, please leave a quick review if you listen on Apple. I can't tell you how much that means to help spread the word of our existence in a very crowded market of podcasts. And by the way, I'm not kidding. I have no idea how or why that actually helps or matters, but the ask is still out there. If you guys ask, coming up, I'll find a conversation I have with the aforementioned author David Halberstam, the author of the incredible book Teammates, Johnny Pesky, Bobby Doerr, Ted Williams, and Dominic DiMaggio, chronicling the lifelong friendship of four men whose lives intersected in Boston and established what we now know as an example of men who truly loved each other through life's great moments and sometimes painful and beautiful experience of growing old. Here you go, Dominic Paul DiMaggio on Hardball. Let's quickly run down the lineups now. DiMaggio, center field, leading off of the Red Sox. And Dominic drives a hit in the right field. Here comes Joe coming home. Joe DiMaggio scoring from second on brother Dominic's line single. The score is now 5-3 in favor of the National Leaguers. Pretty nice to know that I was the third starting outfielder when you've got Ted Williams and Joe DiMaggio who are going to be there every year. Felt very privileged to have my brother and center and my own teammate in left field. The pitch to Don. Swung on a bouncer. Now to Rizzuto. He's grabbing it. Front step on second. Fires the first. A double play. At Fenway Park in left field, we had the scoreboard there, and we had the scoreboard keeper back there, Ted Boyd, and tell the scorekeeper, give me a wave when Joe gets his hit, Joe gets a hit. So the guy would call and turn around to ask him, and Tommy, Joe got a double in the third inning. <laughs> okay, Teddy. Other than the call, as you probably may be hearing, uh, everything's okay. Well, we appreciate you coming on with us today. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Uh, 1995 was kind of a special year for you. A lot of people might not know you were inducted into the Red Sox Hall of Fame. Oh, back in 1995. Was it that long ago? <laughs> yep, time flies. Five years ago. Um, how does, whenever you get an honor like that and you, you start to maybe assess your career a little bit and try to figure out how the heck you got to that point, is it nice that people still remember and people still know what part of history you played in that baseball team's franchise history? Well, yes, of course it is. Uh, of course, uh, being inducted into the Boston Red Sox Hall of Fame, uh, being in in the you know in regional Hall of Fames, I've already been inducted in the San Francisco Oakland Bay Area Sports Hall of Fame and in the Italian American. That's on in San, out in the San Francisco Bay. Mm-hmm. And then in Chicago, the Italian-American Sports Hall of Fame. And so when I got inducted, was 
was inducted into the Red Sox Hall of Fame, I felt that I'd cover the country. You, you've really gone from East Coast to West Coast <laughs> I, and back again. I'm back from the East Coast to the West Coast. <laughs> I'm still out of the big one. <laughs> well, congratulations, though, on the, uh, on the awards and honors you've received. Do you think but a lot of... Very, they were very, very nice awards. I was very pleasant and very, uh, very pleased about it. Do you think that people understand seven-time All-Star? I mean, nothing to sneeze at. A lot of people certainly hear the last name, and, and the first thing that's going to come to mind, obviously, is Joe's career. But seven times on a uh, on a Major League All-Star team, oh, that's, that's not, not un- bad. That, yeah, that's not unusual to me, though, uh, Chris. Uh, uh, I've been <laughs> been uh, doing my thing in the background for all these many years, and that's fine. Joe has uh, been out front, uh, and I've enjoyed just being in the position where I could lay in the background. Nobody has come to me because when they wanted DiMaggio, they always went to Joe. Well, being the youngest of the DiMaggio brothers, and by the way, all three played center field in the major leagues, which is which is mind-boggling unto itself. Did you look up to Joe? How many years was there in terms of the age difference? There were just two years, uh, a little over two years between Joe and myself, and two years between Joe and Vince. Vince was older than Joe by about two years. Was there any sign of who might be the best ball player pretty early on? Well, early on, of course, uh, Vince being the older was the first to enter professional mm-hmm. baseball. Uh, we didn't know when we were all playing. I didn't. I wasn't even included in, in that kind of a, a scheme. I was so small of stature and wore great big uh, horn-rimmed glasses that... Uh, I wasn't even considered that I might uh, become a professional athlete. Vince and Joe were rather large, you know, big guys and uh, uh, plenty of power and tall and strong. Uh, so uh, uh, we couldn't tell at that in, in our early stages uh, who might be the better ball player. Typical younger brother situation where you wanted to tag along with the older two? Well, pretty much so, yeah. Yeah, I tagged along and uh, watched everything unfold in front of me. And then, of course, when they uh, went into professional baseball and got out of the Pacific Coast League and of the major leagues, they got out. Of, they got away from me. <laughs> and uh, from from a point of where Dad said uh, he thought the boys were wasting their time playing uh, these games, found out that uh, you could become a professional baseball player. Then. Later on, much later on, he pointed to me and said, and when are you going to be a baseball player? Now, I talked to Ted Williams about a couple of months back, and and he mentioned something that a lot of people don't realize. He's in San Diego. You're in the San Francisco Bay Area. There's no major league teams out there. There's really nothing in the way of television. So you're playing by hearing games on the radio and then just going out and doing. So the idea of copying someone's style, the idea of uh, uh, adapting or adopting a stance to make it your own, that was very foreign to Ted Williams. I'm assuming the DiMaggio brothers were in the same situation. Oh, I think so. I think we uh, we we did our own little thing. Uh, fortunately, uh, you know, they made the breakthrough. And when I got into the game, because I was small of stature, uh, I tried to do something that I thought would uh, give me more power and more authority in hitting a baseball. But once I entered the game under Frank Lefty O'Doul, who, in my opinion, was the greatest, and I mean the greatest, for teaching uh, anyone how to hit a baseball, uh, I was very fortunate to have him. And he changed me completely around and uh, uh, got me to change from what I thought was a way to hit a ball authoritatively. Uh, It was completely different. 
Now you, and uh, it took me about three weeks to catch on to what he was trying to tell me, but we did it. Well, three weeks isn't bad. You must have been a pretty good student. He must have been a good teacher, but well, he must have been a pretty good student. Yeah, he was. He was excellent and, uh, well, as I say, outstanding. And to me, he was the greatest. He sent more guys into the major leagues than, I believe, uh, anybody that I knew of back then. Uh, along with that, he, uh, <laughs> he uh, took the trouble to spend plenty of time and I recall very clearly uh, this little guy with glasses was told to make a baseball player out of by Mr. Graham. Uh, it worked on me, and it was a challenge to him, I'm sure. Now, you mentioned the glasses a couple of times. I've got to ask, how many players in the major leagues do you believe, numbers-wise, might have been wearing glasses at the time? Well, the only one that really sticks out in my mind was Chick Hafey. I had heard that Specs de Porcer and uh, one or two... Uh, uh, a pitcher or two, but in the outfield, Hafey, uh, but these fellows had already gotten to the major leagues mm -hmm. when they started to wear glasses, and the chick didn't wear them uh, all, all uh, through the game. He wore them, I think he wore them on the field and then took them off at bat or vice versa. I'm not sure. Well, one of the great nicknames of all time, the little professor, comes about because of obviously... The glasses, that had to be different when you went into different ballparks. Did fans kind of get on you a little bit about that? Well, not, not only the fans, but the players themselves. <laughs> oh, the players were, were unmerciful. They, <laughs> they, they gave me a hard time. No, I heard these were that really... all right. I mean, at least I felt <laughs> I was getting somebody angry with me. Now, now, I heard these were really thick glasses. Fact or fiction? Well, back then, yeah, they were, they, they were shatterproof glasses, mm -hmm. and what they had to do... Uh, in order to get them shatterproof, was to put put two pieces of glass and laminate them together. So you had fairly fairly thick glasses, sure. Now I've got to ask. Uh, Joe obviously signs with the New York Yankees. Did the New York Yankees come and talk to you about the possibility of having another DiMaggio on the contract? I don't believe the Yankees were ever interested. The, the uh, Joe Devine, if I recall, was the uh, scout at the time. Uh, I don't know if they had so much uh, interest in me. Uh, the Giants, uh, I believe, had more interest, mm -hmm. uh, but that never went through. Now, who who got the bigger signing bonus, Vince, Joe, or Dom DiMaggio, when you guys eventually signing signed the first contract? with the San Francisco Seals? Yes, yeah, signing the first um, professional contract, right. Oh, that's a tough question. <laughs> it it might have been me, but I'm not sure. God, I don't recall what Joe received or Vince. But uh, I know I, I received uh, $300 for the first, uh, a month for the first two months, and then $500 after that. We played about six months out of the year. We played 200, over 200 games. And Mr. Graham felt that, uh, see, am I, uh, we, we agreed that I would not be farmed out to Tacoma, mm -hmm. uh, or Tucson, rather, because when Vince went down, he came back rather thin, and being of small stature, <laughs> if they'd sent me to Tucson, I <laughs> might have just melted right down there. They figured better in San Francisco uh, in the Bay Area and the West Coast as opposed to the desert air that well, might actually take a few more pounds off you. Yeah, we agreed that uh, I would not go to Tucson, that if the Red Sox, if the San Francisco Ball Club wanted to sign me, they had to sign me and keep me in, in San Francisco. And as a result of that, Mr. Graham said, well, okay, we'll pay down $300 a month for the first two months because we feel that it will take him uh, that period of time to get acclimated to professional mm -hmm. baseball, and then we'll raise it to $500 a month for the 
latter part of the season. I am talking this morning to Dominic DiMaggio, the little professor, youngest of the three DiMaggio boys who played in the major leagues. Kind of ironic, you end up with the Red Sox as uh, Joe's career blossoms with the Yankees. Well, Joe Cronin came out personally to uh, take a look at me. We had an after after the season, we had a couple of charity games, one in Oakland or Alameda, I should say, and one in San Francisco. And Joe came out uh, to watch. I played in both of those games against major leaguers. And uh, after he talked with Larry Woodall, who was my roommate, that was a strange uh, coincidence. Uh, Larry Woodall, who was the oldest player on the Red Sox, and I, the youngest player, roomed together mm. <laughs> that first year. And it was a very uh, ironic uh, incident that we came down to the last day of the season, and it was a doubleheader. Both of us were hitting something like 298 or 299. And Larry came to me, he said, well, Rumi, he said, if anybody gets the 300, he said, I hope you do it because I am at the end of my line. I'm going nowhere, and it means a lot more to you. And so uh, that said, I did. I ended up with 300, 306, I believe. And I was very pleased about that. And I was when Lefty, Lefty came to me between games and wanted me to stay out after I'd reached 300, and I said, no. <laughs> I said, Charlie Berry's pitching, and I, he's gotten me out of line. I owe him something. And uh, you actually had your own Ted Williams moment, the story of 1941 when Ted is hitting 400 and goes out and plays oh, with yeah. the as well. Yeah, yeah. well, of course, that was an amazing, that was much more mm-hmm. uh, glamorous. Ted Williams, what did you think about him as a man? Oh, well, he was a man all the way. Mm-hmm. A great guy, and we are to this day very, very close. Now, I, I believe- talk to Teddy about once a week. You broke in about a year apart, I believe? Uh, I believe, yes. I believe I'm older by today. Then Teddy by a year. Okay. Yeah, they broke it. There were four of us, all from the west coast of the these United States. It was uh, Teddy in San Diego. I was from San Francisco. Bobby Doyle was from Portland, Oregon, and uh, uh, um, Johnny Pesky was from Seattle, Washington. And again, for not having professional teams out there, certainly the Pacific Coast League and other leagues going on, you're talking about getting four pretty big pieces to a puzzle. West of St. Louis, where professional baseball wasn't played at the time. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, but the Pacific Coast League was in uh, was was an excellent, excellent uh, AAA baseball league. Uh, they tried to become a third major league long, long, long before they actually did uh, have a have a major league teams out there. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was never to be that the whole Pacific Coast League would turn into a major league. So uh, they eventually got Major League Baseball out there. Now, you mentioned being inducted into the Italian-American Hall of Fame and, and certainly uh, being in New York City when, when Joe was at the height of his popularity. That was a pretty big thing, pretty big mantle to carry, was it not? Because there are certain times when athletes will go beyond the uniform they're wearing. They will actually represent perhaps their nationality or religion. And uh, that's got to be a pretty tough thing, as well as the pressure of playing in the major leagues. You really have a large group of people looking up to you and expecting a lot and hoping that you deliver. Well, I'd like to, I'd like to think that uh, we, we were there to present ourselves as role, role models and uh, conducted ourselves accordingly. The uh, Italian-American uh, uh, Hall of Fame in Chicago, I believe, had started the year before Originally, I uh, believe they intended to be a boxing Hall of Fame. Uh, 
And Rocky Marciano, I know, is uh, one of the inductees as well. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. There, there, there are a great many uh, boxers. And it was, I believe, the second year that in, of its existence that uh, they opened it up to the other sports. And it was the first year that uh, they had it open for baseball that Joe and I were included. Uh, I think we were the first to be inducted into the Italian-American Sports Hall of Fame. Mr. DiMaggio, there are so many things I'd like to discuss. Would it be possible to put you on hold for a couple of seconds, let us go to a commercial and talk a little bit more about your time with the Red Sox in okay, 1946 sure. and a few other things? Sure. I appreciate it. Dominic DiMaggio, he's got a cold and he's fighting it very well. He will uh, come back and tell us a little bit more about his time in Boston, his time since he's gotten out of the game, and certainly perhaps a couple of Joe DiMaggio stories, Vince DiMaggio stories we'll hear from. Dom DiMaggio coming up with you, me, and the rest of Atlanta right here on Sports Leader 790 The Zone. Be kind and certainly willing to give us a little bit of his time today to find out a little bit of the fact and fiction around the DiMaggio name and around baseball game. And Dom DiMaggio, as I said, a seven-time All-Star. Also, I believe, still holds the all-time Red Sox record, Mr. DiMaggio, for a 34-game hitting streak. Yes, that's right. A couple of the boys have come close. Uh, the most recent was uh, Nomar Gachiapara mm-hmm. about two three years ago. Got up to 30, but couldn't make the breakthrough. And it's, as a matter of fact, if anybody had gone through uh, my consecutive batting streak with the Red Sox, I would have uh, been more than pleased to have Nomar do it. He's a throwback to the old-timers. And, and you talk about uh, maybe the way the game was played a little bit. I love when players such as yourself from your generation talk about throwback guys. Do you watch a lot of baseball, and do you think it's different now? Oh, uh, well, of course it's different. Uh, each era becomes a different uh, uh, period of time when baseball changes, as a matter of fact. I wrote a book back in 1991 called Real Grass, Real Heroes. Mm. And in that book, I stated that baseball would never be the same after 1941 that, uh, than it was, as, as it was since the turn of the century. And uh, it is certainly proven that uh, there have been tremendous changes in baseball since 1941. Why did you pick that year in particular? Well, that's because the, everybody went into the service. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the boys entered and were very pleased and willing to uh, enlist in the service. I enlisted in the service with the glasses. I had a bit of a problem getting in. They didn't want to take me because of my glasses. I said I didn't pass muster. But then uh, I, I argued with a guy, and we sent a letter to the War Department, and they accepted me. And you did three years in the service, I believe. I certainly did, yes. And uh, we certainly know Mr. Williams. And, and, and I, don't, I, I don't regret it. I think it was the nicest experience I've ever had. And, and again, hearkening back to the conversation with Ted Williams, he said he was as proud of that uniform, certainly as the Boston Red Sox uniform. And that, that really says a lot about the times. You can believe that. That's true. 56-game um, hitting streak, the one that's maybe a little bit more known with the DiMaggio name attached to it. Um, Was Joe nervous at any point? I mean, did did he talk about it? Uh, Was there that, I don't want to talk about it because I might jinx myself? Well, once he got back into, uh, once he got to the 40s, uh, you know, the early 40s, when he started to break uh, the records, I think it was Keeler and Mm -hmm. somebody else, and when they found that he'd broken that record, they found somebody else who hit a couple more. Uh, Then, uh, of course, he he realized uh, what he was doing went on but no he didn't uh, uh didn't talk about it he was just uh, uh there and knew what was going on and that uh, he was writing history was it true that the Heinz 57 company had a contract and an offer that's and what signed? I've heard Chris down through the years yeah. I heard that Chris uh, uh, the Heinz 57 was prepared to 
uh, offered Joe a substantial contract had he hit in 56, uh, 57 straight games, because that was their, I guess, logo, motto, whatever they call it. But um, uh, he didn't uh, get there, nor I don't know what they would have done had he got beyond. <laughs> yeah, what happens if he gets 58? Yeah, no. <laughs> what you do is you just take the check and put it in the bank and say thank you. Yeah, I got it at 57, so there you are. <laughs> Let's just keep going at that point. There might be another company, perhaps Phillips 66. I think he did hit 17 more after he got stopped. Yeah, yes, he did. And, and he also, I believe, holds the Pacific Coast League, the all-time professional Oh, yes, record. he did that in his rookie year. That's 61? He hit in 61 straight game. Ridiculous, by the way. Well, it's... Unbelievable. <laughs> um, I know there are some legal issues around this right now, and, and you and I had a brief conversation about a month back. Can you just tell me, did you guys really play in that park in San Francisco? Oh, because, of course we did. Yeah, one Children, of the as kids, we spent practically all of our uh, childhood playing uh, games in that playground. It was a lovely playground. Uh, it has been allowed to be uh, run down somewhat. But I think uh, a facelift uh, would do wonders with it. Well, Joe's name uh, attached to it would absolutely mean a facelift was coming to it. What had to, what have to be, of course. Uh, they should realize that. I mean, whoever, uh, you know, they're making a, a big issue out of the fact that it was uh, run down. Uh, I'm sure the city wasn't going to just let it sit there. And as a matter of fact, when I made a statement, I said if they modernize it, there's no reason in this world why that playground should not be named after Joe. We played all of our childhood. As far as I'm concerned, that playground is a part of Joe, part of all of us. And it's just unfortunate sometimes when people perhaps uh, are given a position to speak their mind about something they might be a little bit off base well, on. Well, for whatever reason, uh, they've chosen to do that. And uh, it's just unfortunate as far as I'm concerned. It's just, uh, just a terrible thing. But... Uh, that's the way life is. Yeah, may, may I say for whatever it's worth, um, your one statement about, yes, I would be happy with that situation should settle any, I know it doesn't work that way in real life, but to me that should set, settle any dispute and every legal action at that point should be dropped when someone such as a brother says, yes, I don't think outside parties should be as involved as they are right now. Well, the, 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 uh, <laughs> we won't get into that. Yeah, uh, you played in three All-Star games with Joe. Just three? Was it three? Oh, God, I thought it was more than that. Well, I have that you... Uh... I thought, I thought, <laughs> I... No, I thought, Chris... Oh, that you know what? You're right. You were in the all outfield. All but one, right. actually. You were in the outfield with him three different oh, times, perhaps. Oh, I was more than that. Was, I was it really? Sure. I, I think I played uh, every game uh, next to Joe, with the exception of one. Uh, I, I started in center field, Joe... Uh, was I don't know whether he was out with an injury okay. or was having a difficult time, but I started one game in center field. The other rest of the time, uh, I was I was in right field. So they moved and, you over. Yeah. So uh, well, where Joe was concerned, yes. But when he wasn't <laughs> involved, I played in center field. So I have to. That alone would tell you that uh, uh, he I had to be playing alongside of Joe most of those years. Yeah. Now uh, one year on one year. Uh, it, it, it just so happened that I didn't start. And when I relieved somebody and played uh, uh, alongside of Joe, Joe happened to be batting in front of me. Now, that, one, <laughs> that was 
unheard of. That would not normally happen. No, you're a leadoff but hitter, and Joe was obviously getting in the middle of the lineup. And so when I entered the game, I was batting behind Joe, and at one point Joe was on second base, and I drove him in with a base hit. And uh, they've made a great big thing out of that down through the years. I wonder if that's the only time in All-Star Game history that one brother has driven in another. I have no idea. Now, you scored what would have been a... Uh, a much ballyhooed run. I believe it was Game 5 of the 1946 World Series. You go up 3-2, and, well, here comes the end of the jinx. There's no more curse. There's nothing. The Red Sox might win themselves a World Series. Unfortunately, Enos Slaughter scored a more famous run in that series. Yes. Uh, Enos Slaughter has been uh, made, you know, he's so well known for making that famous run. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was not present at the time that he did it, or I assure you he would not have happened. Now, you were not in the game, correct? That is correct. And a lot of people don't know this part of the story. There was somebody well, else in the outfield. I was not in the game, not because uh, I wasn't uh, capable of being out there. It was because I was injured mm-hmm. and had to leave the inning before. Uh, I was not in center field. As a matter of fact, uh, I, I, made the, I got the base hit that tied up the seventh game in the World Series in the uh, top half of the eighth inning. And is that how you got injured? And that's how I was injured. I tried to stretch the hit into a triple, mm-hmm. figuring that if they uh, weren't, ca- they were too careful pitching to Ted, if they made a short pass ball, I was going to score from third base. But unfortunately, as I tried to pick up a little more speed rounding first, that's when I made the mistake. I pulled a muscle and I barely got to second base. Uh, we the game was held up for the longest, longest time. I did not want to leave, and uh, Cronin didn't want me to leave, but it, it it was very difficult. I could barely walk and had to leave because there was so much importance attached to being on second base number one and then, of course, taking my feet part, my place in the field after the inning. So I left and uh, was replaced, and Harry Walker's hit would never have gotten as far as it did in the outfield, uh, and uh, I, I've said all along that I might have had a play with at, at slaughter at third base, but uh, and it was a kind of an afterthought on Edis's part. Once he got to third, he remembered they had I had left the game mm-hmm. because I had thrown out three or four of them during the series, and they had stopped running. And uh, he suddenly remembered, according to his own words, that I wasn't there, and decided, well. And, and those are the words that he, he used. Off. Yeah, he he told me the same story in the same line of thinking earlier this year when I had a chance to speak to him. And of course, uh-huh. the Mad Dash in 1946, Enos Slaughter, very good ball player in his own right, but certainly put on the map. Oh, yeah. uh, when you score the winning run in a Game Seven of a World Series, you will certainly become pretty well known. Uh, Mr. DiMaggio, I really have appreciated your time. Uh, if it's not too much of a bother, maybe somewhere down the road before the playoffs, I'd love to get together with you again and, and maybe discuss a little bit more of baseball past, some of the players you saw, some of the people you played with and against, and, and maybe just reminisce a little bit about the game the way you know it. Okay. Well, I really do appreciate it, and again, good luck with everything. My pleasure. And I hope to speak to you very, very soon. Okay. Have a great day. Well, I really didn't much care. I, I just felt that I was going to the big leagues, and as long as I was in Boston, I knew there was a rivalry between Boston and the Yankees. So I said, well, that's okay with me. There'll be a rivalry with Joe and me. Hey, Bob Reba. 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 And so I uh, went out and batting practice the next day, and I noticed how the wind currents were a little different than a normal ballpark. So I did take about five, ten paces further back, 
and then I stole two balls from him that were hit way deep into the left center field. <laughs> so Eddie Dyer told me, he says, if you get in a situation again and you two men out and you think you can score, you go ahead and gamble and I'll be responsible for that. Well, you know in his eighth inning with the score tied, Dominic DiMaggio would double off the screen in right field to tie the score. Well, he didn't go back to center field, so it had a ball by the name of Leon Culverson, but he's not the outfield that Dominic DiMaggio was. He was a great little outfielder. Well, when Harry Walker hit the ball and I was running, I said to myself, I can score. And I rounded second, the ball was just hitting the ground out in left center. And from then on, I never looked up. All I was looking for was home plate. And when I saw Roy Partee take two or three strides in front of the plate, I knew I was home free. I didn't even have to slide. But in my whole career, when I uh, thought that was going to be a play on me, I always try to hit the dirt. By doing that, to save the legs and not have a broken ankle or a broken leg. Up in the mountain, mad as I can be, looking for the cat that took my baby from me, shouting, hey, Bob, Reba. 